I would get people going like, oh, God, you must really miss being in a band. And I'd be like, look, it was great. Really glad I did it. But no, <laughs> I don't fucking miss it, actually. <laughs> like, this is better. I just I come into work. I do my job. I can go home. I can I finish at six and I don't have to take it home with me. <laughs> Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. map. Mickey Brenny. Hello. It's lovely to see you. It's been <laughs> such a long, long, long time. I, I, I don't know if, if we, I know we have met before. I, I know we've met. I just don't know where. Yeah, I think it's probably more memorable to me because I was sort of hyperventilating at the time because I think there was, I think you and Susie were both at, I think it was a curve after show or some sort of party it was in one of those sort of swanky bars and mm. um I was very excited I distinctly remember gushing and telling you how I used to tap out the drum beat of Mad-Eyed Screamer on my pencil case at school oh and you were very tolerant you smiled and you laughed and you indulged me talking utter shit so it was very nice of you oh it, it couldn't <laughs> have been that hard Mickey it couldn't no but I remember what was the, like wasn't necessarily the back cave but there was another place further down into Soho going towards Chinatown and there was a place another kind of bar club not the embassy. And no. I, we, no, 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 it wasn't like, you know, where you'd see Lemmy or anybody like that. It was where you'd see my hairdresser, <laughs> Donald, Donald, the hairdresser to the stars, who also did. Uh, so it wasn't heaven then. It wasn't heaven either. It, not that night, lol. No. no. <laughs> I've got a story about heaven, yeah. which, which is really, you know, just sums me up from that time. Shall I tell it quickly? Go on. I'm intrigued. Heaven under the arches, ladies and gentlemen who are uh, overseas. Um, it, it was the like the big kind of gay hotspot, right? Uh, you know, certainly the weekends, anyway. The nights I would go because that's the nights that you know we could get in and not be bothered because um, everybody was like swarming around Susie if she was there. She wasn't there that night. I'd probably gone out on my own. Um, and there was chatting with all these people. And then somebody said to me, like, I've got nowhere to stay. And I said, hey, come and stay at my place. And so I got the taxi and got back to where we were living. And the last place I lived at in um, in London before I left for good was in Notting Hill Gate before it went whoosh, swishy, wishy, really expensive. But it was pretty expensive. But um, anyway, uh, and I get into the uh, flat and uh, I say, well, I just made your bed up in the next room and I just kind of the look on, on this poor young man's face because I don't know and um, see ya good night <laughs> and that's and the it, story you tell publicly okay. obviously <laughs> yes that's, that's the public one <laughs> yes well I'm telling it for the first time really it seems it's, it's a very novice like story and I'm thinking does it is it formed properly yet um <laughs> 
because I can't quite believe that's what I was like, but that's what I was like. You know, I, I was sort of, um, I don't know, green, naive, or stupid, or, or just drunk. <laughs> so do you think, see, I, like, I don't want to, I sort of have to tread carefully, but I do wonder whether the kind of, I mean, I used to go to heaven sometimes, but it was, you know, they had quite a lot of gigs on there. Right. Yeah. And um, I do wonder whether sort of, pickups are quite different in the kind of gay world because I don't think if you had a sort of straight pickup I mean you would have been all over each other in the cab there would have been an indication that this is where it's going you wouldn't just sit there and then arrive back do you know what I mean and so yeah. maybe there was a different code there that do you see what I mean like like because to me that would be weird yes, I'm, I'm not sure if you're making me feel better or now and now, now I'm really racking the brain going did I give him the come on in the cab? <laughs> I, I can I can see I can see that actually, Mickey. But what I was thinking was maybe he was was he very young? Was he a very young guy? Do you remember? Careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because I'm thinking may, maybe he didn't know the the ropes as it were. Well, Lolly, you know? see, I mean, nobody was young then. We were all young. Now yeah, we're, we're all young. He's yeah, younger than then. us now. Yeah, I remember. I remember going to heaven and it being you know a lot of fun and stuff. What young? Was it young? It was very young. I was very young, for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wished I had started this conversation. Mickey, I've been doing my, my due diligence. You know, I've read your book, which is wonderful. Thank you. Well, it's one of the best memoirs I've ever read. Oh. And I couldn't stop. Can I just say as well, I, I just like a talk about page turner yeah very moving as well very moving story um i just wanted to give you a hug that's all i wanted to do no it's very it's very good because it's um it's got the two things in that i always look for in, in in a memoir it's authentic and it's honest and those are the two hardest things and i know that personally from writing that the two hardest things to get across and also to make yourself do you know when i started writing my memoir i uh, i put my my agent off for about six months because i just couldn't you know i was i didn't know what i wanted to tell and how i wanted to tell it and how much i wanted to tell and um you know i could tell from from yours that you've gone through that process right well i mean <sighs> So I'm, I'm kind of curious. So how did you sort of arrive at it then? Were you were you just thinking about it a lot or did you d did you have sort of different efforts at it? Well, I had some efforts at it and then I realised I was skirting a lot of the, the, the points, a lot of the, the main things, you know, and I was thinking, well, you know, if, I, if I'm not prepared to be 100% honest, every, every reader is going to figure that out. And you know, it's like I read I read um, Pete Townsend's thing, and he doesn't he doesn't say in it he was you know an addict you know at all. And I'm like, why? You know, we all know it's like you know the the, the sixty four thousand pound gorilla in the corner. You've got to talk about it, and if you don't talk about it, um, it wouldn't be fulfilling to me. It's like when you when you do anything creative, if you're not there with it, with your whole being. It's not going to work. And that's really what I was dancing around with for six months. You know, I was trying to, I don't know if I should put, should put this. And, and when I finally did it, it was a great relief. And um, like I, I read something about, uh, I think it was probably in The Guardian or something about you were talking to somebody and saying, well, you know, the book is not 
vengeful. I'm not being vengeful. I'm telling my my story. Everybody can tell their story, and that's absolutely bloody right. You know, it's like you have to tell your story, and your story is not necessarily going to dovetail in with everybody else's, because、uh, everybody has different memories and they have different viewpoints about what happened and how it happened. You know, and I, I had a lot of that. I had some pushback from certain people from that, and it's like, well, you know. Hey, I gave you the book six months before it was published, and you didn't say anything about it then. So you know, I gave you the opportunity. So you have to, you have to be you, and that's what I got from your book, and that's why I liked it. It was like、um, Viv Albertine from the Slits. I read her book, and it was the same thing. I knew that okay, she's telling the truth. You know, it's not just like gussied up to make it look you know exciting or whatever. And that it's the truth about being there and how it was. But one thing. I have to ask you this question. One thing's been bothering me. I lived in the same area of London as you for all of like till the middle of the eighties. How the hell didn't I bump into you somewhere along there? You know, because <laughs> I went to the same clubs, I went to the same places. I was probably, I mean, I'm a few years older, but you know. so what? But what bit of London? Because I lived in various places. Right. Well, I lived. I lived in like Wilston Green, Maidenvale,、okay. NW6. I was right there for like seven years, solid. Bronsbury Villas, Bronsbury Park, all round there. So, I mean, I'm being funny. There wasn't a whole lot going on in Wilson. No, there wasn't. So, like, there, <laughs> there were many sort of clubs that we would have, and there's fuck all pubs as well. Like, it's a really weird area. There's like, well, there was the Warrington. Down- yes, but that's Maida Vale. I'm talking like, you know, sort of for me, it was like even getting to Maida Vale was a bit harder. So anywhere on the Jubilee line was fine, and so it would be, you know, so Kilburn had loads of pubs, but you know. Or kind of Irish pubs and stuff. Wilson <laughs>、yeah. only had the Spotted、yeah. Dog, which was just, you know, I mean, whatever. But、um, so quite, we probably passed each other at the Tube Station or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, right. That's right. But I don't think we'd have been hanging out at a, at a, some sort of glamorous bar or something. No,、know? no. The other the other pubs in Wilson and Kilburn were like all the Irish pubs. I used to go with my my Irish friend Paul Bell. We go to. Biddy Mulligans, you know, and he'd 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 get me through the front door, you know. He go, oh, your man's all right, you know. He's he's with me, and we come in there、yes. and listen to things. I you know. remember, I do remember going to lock-ins at Biddy Mulligans, and <laughs> they start <laughs>、right. singing all the songs and Irish. Oh yes, and all that. oh yes, fun, actually. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I loved walking down. Kilburn High Road, late at night, past the Gorty Moor, you know, and and people coming running out and just sprawling across the taxi that you were in or something, you know, like completely insane. Did you do a lot of walking? Look, do you know what? It was really weird reading through my diaries when I was kind of, you know. Just trying to immerse myself back in the sort of teenage years and stuff. We walked everywhere. <laughs> like it was really, it sort of really struck me that,、um, you know, there were places that I rented where we didn't have a phone, you know, and other people didn't have phones. So you would literally walk from I don't know Willsden to Queensway or something, and just to see if someone was in, right? Right, <laughs> and, right, and then get there、right. and go. Oh, they、yeah. weren't in. So then we walked up to Camden because we thought they might be at another person's house. And you're literally just yep, spending like、yep. half the day walking around, missing the last tube home. So walking back from wherever the hell, 
all the way up to North London. Yeah, there was just loads and loads of walking. I yeah, I, I usually had no no money left or refused to spend it on certainly not a taxi. No, but but there was always like this kind of homing pigeon thing, you know. I was well named by uh, Holly, you know, when he called. <laughs> hey, budgie. <laughs> and because I, I, I had budgies, because I didn't want pigeons, because everybody had pigeons and they were grey and boring. But um. Like a homing pigeon, I used to always find my way home, stumbling, so, you know, more often than not, from the West End out to, I used to live in Earl's Court, and then, like, then kind of gravitated north to uh, Kensington, you know, till you probably arrive. Yeah. I was always, I had a terrible sense of direction, so I used to walk a very long route where I would follow almost the tube stations. <laughs> So I'd go to Baker Street and then I'd go, right, now I've got to get to St. John's Wood and then to Swiss Cottage. Right. And I do remember once, I remember me and Emma going to see the Higsons in like Uxbridge, way out at Uxbridge Uni. Right. And missing the last bus home and we started walking and Emma was always like, I have an infallible sense of direction, right? So I was just following her and the next, after about an hour's walking, I just saw this sign that said, welcome to Buckinghamshire. And I was like, okay, I think we're actually going the wrong way now. So, just, so yeah, lots of, lots of roaming around at night time. Is, Are you still in touch with Emma? Well, she doesn't talk to me, so. Uh, <laughs> so not. So no, no. I did send her the book, but she's not happy about it so hey did you did did you speak to her before you started to write well we you know we had like a kind of reunion we did a lush reunion and then that's when we sort of all kind of there was a big bust up after that so I hadn't really talked to her but I did let her know that I was writing it and then you know I sent it in advance but it's difficult you know you're writing about someone who you haven't spoken to for five years yeah, yeah. I mean in some ways you know, kind of veering back to what you were saying, Lol, about trying to think about what you actually want to write about. Right. Um, I did sort of feel that, you know, if I'd have had Emma on hand to sort of go, oh, fucking hell, do you remember this or do you remember that? And, you know, to flesh it out a bit and it would have been great. But at the same time, I did feel if I'd have had her kind of, you know, if, <laughs> if I'd have been watching my step around her... Do you know what I mean? I just don't think I could have said. Are you saying that you you would have you would have fallen back into the relationship that was alive and present and strong and kicking back then? Well, I think so because because that was kind of you know, and I'm not even saying that's a massive criticism of anybody, but you know, you know what it's like. You're in a band. There are certain. It's quite a unique relationship. You're you're, yes. you're friends with these people, and you work with them. You might even have had relationships with them. It's really complex, and to navigate through that when you have to see each other and make the next album and go on the next tour, and you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In a way, it's a voyage of discovery for like you filling in, if you like, the the parts in between what everybody knows, what certainly what the band knows, yeah. but or what they think they know. So, you know, it's a relationship that I think suffers a lot from, you know, even even without any ill intent, you know, there's quite a lot of pressure from outside. People 
there are people who kind of want to find their way into that group and and they do that by chiseling you apart a bit and 100% you know it's sort of come that all of that sort of whether it's people that you work with or people that you you know who are all right whatever hangers on you know what I mean everyone's looking for cracks to kind of work their way in and that can actually cause problems between you as well so you know, when I've had people ask me like, oh, my God, you know, you and Emma and this sort of relationship. And I said, look, it's really not that unusual. OK. Not at all. And nearly everybody I know who is in a band has said, well, that was exactly the relationship I had with our bass player or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was difficult to read because you it was you know mirroring a lot of my own experience in the banshees with sure the, absolutely and 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 your relationship with uh emma was pretty much mirrored mine as well exactly you know, you, you know i th- i think that actually a lot of band books music books tend to sort of shy away from that i understand because they've got a brand to uphold and you've got fans who maybe don't want that kind of illusion shattered you know so there's all sorts of reasons, I think, why people might write the book that I couldn't write or lol, as you're saying, you know, you sit there and you think, well, I don't really want to write some sort of puff piece that right, doesn't right. really tell my story. But I understand why people do. You know, I do understand why some people think, well, this is what people want to hear. The show must go on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Smile and... <laughs> I keep I keep asking lol so you know I've been writing for years and years and it's it's suddenly become a serious proposition um and has been for the last year really um but get do I have to prepare myself for the fallout you do <laughs> we're not none of the people are in contact with me you know we're not in touch with each other after all those years together yeah. Um, wow! And you were saying, of course, you do. You know, some they probably won't speak to you again <laughs> if they if they're ever going to. Now they won't. Yeah, now they won't. I mean, that's that's been my experience as well. You know, is that, had, even uh, if we're really nice and horribly nice, and yeah, doesn't make any difference. <laughs> it's the fact that you you dared to do it. Mm. You know, that's the point. Yeah. And some people, you know, will take offence at. I mean, look, I understand it's exposing, you know, being written about. I mean, we're all in bands, you know, we've all been written about by the press and that can be quite uncomfortable, you know, when your personality is summed up in some completely unrecognisable way, you know, that irritates you, even if they're not saying anything particularly terrible. So I do understand, you know, when you've had like quite intimate sort of relationships with people in a band that they feel that oh my god you're you know this is all from your perspective you know it is a bit difficult I get that of course yeah yeah but at the same time I would argue that you know we are you know it's an interesting life and actually there you know lots of people lots of actors lots of performers lots of creative people write their stories yeah okay sure. and if you're part of that story you're you know as long as it's not really malicious you know i can't actually equally bear to read books that you know i, I mean i didn't read it myself but i remember someone telling me about i don't know morrissey's book or something and 
I don't know. I think he has. I know he had like some court case with two of the people in the band, but he, you know, he really fucking, you know, digs into them. And actually, I think that ends up reflecting back on you anyway. Absolutely. You know, if you're going to be that bitter about someone that you had such a long relationship with, then it doesn't make you look good either, no. you know, as the writer. No. So it's more about balance, but you can't just say the good stuff. You can't just say the sort of happy public stuff. You can you can tell the books that really are can't wait to get into the courtroom drama or wherever it was. <laughs> yeah. Go, oh yeah. no, here we go. So I think every one of uh, Rotten's books is almost every one that I've read. Yeah, there's the kind of like a Malcolm this, a Malcolm that, and yeah. he's a rotter. <laughs> yeah. Words to that effect. Yeah. I mean, you you had an important point there, Mickey, because it it's like you know you can't just write about the good stuff. You've got to write about everything. And you know the thing with the the Morrissey book, my my agent told me, well, he said he didn't want an editor. He wouldn't have an editor if he was going to write a book. He should have had an editor because you know that's the bit where the book gets really boring. You know, him and the court case. You know, have I told you how much I hate the judge? Have I told you how much I hate? you know it's just it's boring i mean the first part of that book was great the description of manchester and stuff and growing up there that was proper that, coronation street that wasn't it right it was yeah but it was that was good but then it became boring so you do need to have some perspective i suppose is what it is really isn't it well and also that's i think that's quite a uh you know i i understand have like people's worry about being edited is that you know that it's gonna be twisted or something but Having been a sub-editor for 20 years, you know, I think um, having an editor is an immense compliment. You know, a good editor just wants the book to be as good and readable and interesting. And they have a proper nose for it. You know, it's a real, you know, it's a boon to have someone like that on your side. Yes. And I I mourn the kind of lack of editors in, you know, sub especially in journalism, where I think, you know, I do read things very critically and go, oh, that, that paragraph could have gone. Because, <laughs> and I do think that's why, you know. Did you, did you have to take your ed- editor's hat off as you were getting everything out? I couldn't, re- I, I couldn't really help myself um, sort of editing as I went along. But again, you know, when it came to cutting it and I had, you know, people at 9-8, and coming back, I was like, yep, yeah, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. Because I did want it to be a page turner. I didn't want it to be this sort of thing that sagged and dragged and, oh, well, I really want to get that bit in because I've got an axe to grind or because it's, you know, some huge confessional moment. But so if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Just take it out, you know. It's fine. There's plenty yeah, of other right. shit in there. So, and so that is all the different levels. You know, you want to get the good stuff in, you want to get the bad stuff in, you want to get the sad stuff and the happy stuff, but you also want it to be readable. <laughs> My editor that I've had for the, the first book, and I've just finished the second book, <laughs> been the same guy, and it's been great to have him because you know he he does it like you say he he wants me to give the best version of me and and that's really you know wonderful to have that and um you know i've learned a lot i've learned a lot from him um i always look at the editor a bit like you know the record producer 
you know, like there to give you the best version of yourself. And uh, I just wanted to talk because I, I, I found in the book and I, I didn't know this and, and I've seen him recently, so I could have asked him about it, but we've all had the same producer, all three of us at one point in our... Uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> yeah. Mike Hedges, right? I, I, I could see that's one reason I knew your book was was authentic because your description of Mike and, and how things went and stuff, I can see that 100%. So You've you know. never been... Lol, did you ever make it to Chateau de la Rouge Motte? <laughs> No, no, I didn't. I didn't. That uh, I didn't make it there. Did you see all the Lego, Mickey? It was like there's a room that was like all blue, yellow, and red. You couldn't actually get in the room. There was so much Lego, and that was probably my room. We didn't work there. I don't think we actually worked because uh, Susie and I moved to France because Mike had moved to France, and he gave us all these brochures and saying you've really got to move to France. It's brilliant. And uh, Domfront is really like a bit sort of like a i don't know sort of edinburgh that's not really edinburgh you know i think calling it edinburgh is glorifying <laughs> it in massively well what i mean is that it's it's gray and the the roof the roofs are kind of very uh, slope <laughs> to probably to let the snow get off really quickly you know it's pretty cold and wet in domfront yeah and we were there in fucking january okay and you know, I I feel bad. I, I do feel bad sort of about some of the sort of stories in the book because you can't, you know, you sort of play them up a bit for humour. And it was, look, it's got a lovely fucking house, you know what I mean? Whatever, right? But it was like just a sort of, I don't know, I felt like I was in some, you know, when children are kind of sent away because they've got like fucking tuberculosis during the war or something. Yeah. Like I thought fuck am I doing here you know it's like it's nothing to do (laughs) I don't know what it would have been like to to be there for weeks Uh, we did uh, we had the similar experience where we started writing having been apart for a best part maybe I think Susie and I had been doing boomerang we'd been off in Spain we'd been working with Mike right and and similar experience so we did it all on a mobile probably similar equipment that Mike had put in, into uh, into his studio in France. And um, it was kind of, we got through it just by the skin of our teeth because we couldn't actually hear what we were recording because it was all so loud and the desk was in the same room and there was not much chance of listening back to what you'd just done. So it, it wasn't until we got to his home in Wilston that we started to hear it. And Mike started mixing and we were thinking, it's not finished. Mike at that point was so busy. I think he was doing like the 10th version of the Lars. You know, here she comes. Oh, there she goes. There she goes again. That's that one, right? I don't know how many versions of that song I heard. (laughs) But Mike was involved in it heavily. (laughs) And we're going, it's not finished. We need to. So we had to again go to a middle of London studio, which probably costs more than the whole bulk of the album. And this is a Creatures album, so it's, you know, it's kind of a solo deal record. And all those things, I suppose, you just plough through them, hoping that you'll come out with what you were trying to achieve, if, even if you knew what that was. And you tr- you kind of try and find the person that can navigate it for you. And, and Mike wasn't that person. He wasn't really the best navigator, but he was certainly a lot of fun. I mean, I... He was great. To be honest, I thought he was really great at recording stuff. 
when we were at Rockfield, it was really good. But I think it went, you know, we had way too many tracks. We had all the B-sides and everything. I do think he just lost interest. And, you know, and it, it was just, it got to the point where he just didn't know what the fuck to do with us, really. And we didn't, you know, I mean, I, I'm sort of haunted by that house. Right? <laughs> this is the problem. <laughs> because I just don't think we want it to be there. We'd already gone to Rockfield to record. You know, I'm a real homebody in that, like, I, I love going on tour and stuff, but, you know, you want to be with your people. And, and touring is different because you're playing a gig every night. It's exciting. You know, sitting around all fucking day in the middle of nowhere is not my idea of fun. I get antsy on sort of holidays in the countryside and you know and, and we had this sort of place where there was nothing there was no fucking telly there was no there wasn't you know it's not like we had a stereo we had like a record collection nothing he had one pinball machine right he had this fucking pinball machine which was great <laughs> and for about two days he let us play on it for free and after that he fucking started charging us oh. for it right? <laughs> so all we were doing was playing pinball all day then going into Don Front to go to the bank and change money to put in the fucking pinball machine right that was oh, that was I'm it thinking, no. <laughs> no no you get out of there now no <laughs> When, when you described the whole thing about being stuck in the middle of the countryside with nothing to do, that was like my experience with um, us doing disintegration because even though we weren't that far in the country, we were in the country, you know, like out, outside in Reading, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And we had like one day a week that we take off and then we go and do something. Maybe we go into Reading. But of course, because, you know, uh, Bob's nocturnal, right? <clears throat> we didn't start until you know six or seven in the evening and by the time it came round to like four in the morning when we finally got to bed so the uh, day off nobody was going to wake up until like three in the afternoon and by that time it was getting dark and miserable and uh, oh, it, was, it was it was very very depressing making that album in, in lots of ways i mean you know i wasn't in the best shape myself but i mean it was there was not there was a pool table that simon played all the time and me, me and boris went into town and got a little joke cue ball and put it on the table and that was the most fun we ever had but <laughs> apart from that there was there's nothing to do there at all you know nothing you want to try going to how do what they call it residential recording or writing in arding lie not far yeah. from your right. uh, neck of the where woods, i grew right? up yeah. yeah yeah you can play cricket on the green if you're lucky on sundays yeah. if you know well that would have been a bit more exciting than being stuck out in the middle of uh nowhere i mean you know i think the thinking behind a lot of those residential studios is that you'll do like loads of work yeah. and i don't know i actually i'm trying to think i'm assuming that the point is is that you're away from all like tempting distractions or something but the thing is, yeah. is we were never really like that we didn't you know we always turned up we were you know we were actually quite straight in that way we weren't all off you know, not turning up to photo sessions or mm. or just acting like rock and rollers. We were right. <laughs> actually quite rule bound, so it was sort of wasted on us, really. Yeah. And I do think it was kind of Howard, our manager's idea, that he thought it was like 
the thing to do, you know, like that's the rock and roll thing to do. I don't think yeah. there was any thinking behind it. Right. You know. It's funny, isn't it? But the the, the, the Slits album, my first album, I mean, yeah. it suited the Slits album. It suited the girls perfectly because um, they had somebody looking after them. Right. But it, Viv mentions in her book that the cooking, the chef yeah. was awesome. She's brilliant. And we'd never seen so much food because we're all like, <laughs> living in dire poverty. <laughs> Little punkies up in yeah. London with no money. Yeah. So that was nice. I missed out, I missed out on the swimming pool antics. Yeah. Know. Never mind. Yeah. We did have one good residential one I liked for Kiss Me, when that was in the south of France. And oh, you and went we to were a, uh, Miraval. Yeah, we were in a vineyard, which, you know, was probably a bad idea, you know, because they, they charged us for the for the studio and gave us Miraval, Chateau Miraval wine for free. They probably wished it was round the other way by the end of, like we were there for three months. You know, it was ridiculous. You know what, Mickey, because it's, it's lovely, I say, it is lovely to see you and I, I saw Viv when she was doing her book tour around um, here in Berlin, actually. She came to, I forgot where I was for a minute. <laughs> so you, where am I? You know, <laughs> it's Wednesday, you're in Berlin. You know, like, yeah. you just kind of, I get pulled into the conversation. I don't know where I am. I'm like, <laughs> way back, I'm either in France or I'm at Mike's place. And Viv came through and I just, I just kind of turned up. And when I shouted her and she came out, because I couldn't get into the talk because it was all sold out and it was a big festival in the center of the city. And I just shouted her, she came out and thinking, I hope she recognizes me. And it was just a big hug and we couldn't stop talking and she said, do you want some cake? And she had some tea. And, and, and we'd never done any of those things. We'd never talked. We'd never had tea. We'd never at cake together. We probably had shared a dinner table with all the band and the people around and, touring and all the rest but as adults as grown-ups and and it really did feel and that's kind of what I love about the writing you've you've put out there is now you're giving words to the crazy situations if when we probably did have a conversation you know I was as gushing as you thought thought you were and I was probably going oh look those the guys from placebo you know and well, you're <laughs> tall aren't you because I remember saying that to the bass player and I'm really sorry but <laughs> but he was so he's so much taller than Brian and I said, and um does your hair my hairdresser do your hair as well in those really stupid conversations <laughs> but now we can have like proper conversations and talk about things that we know about <laughs> and and realize that we it wasn't just me that was losing my mind i think people assume when you're you know bands hanging out together that you're all kind of I don't know, living in some kind of palace in the sky where everything is just wonderful. Like, I mean, I do think people think that, you know, oh, my God, you know, you're all so lucky and it's bit this, that and the other. I don't think people really think that you all get together and go, yeah, it's fucking shit and I fucking hate them and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it's all like offloading all this stuff. And I think it's – and you're right, like – at the time, people wouldn't really do that because they're all defending their corner, aren't they? They're sure. all like, oh, well, we've got to look like we're doing really well and everything's amazing. So you can't admit that to anybody else. Um, <laughs> so much. It was such a kind of a, an established routine that I had no idea I was doing it. 
Right. I, right. Your hair was brilliant red. Mine was bleached white. <laughs> Could have twined together and been a match or something. <laughs> but it was uh, a, a big um, mask in a way, you know, a big, a big, you know, a presentation. Oh, totally. The whole the whole thing. And I mean, you know, that was that was part of the deal. We had to have the front, you know, to make it work. And now we've been through all of that, all of us. I mean, because, you know, you've had a long time being uh, out of music, right, Nikki? So now you're back in it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how, how are you feeling about that? How does that feel? Well, I think because I've been away from it from for so long, and, you know, Lush were never you know massive so it's not like i mean i think it you know i kind of got i had a career outside of music i had the children you know blah 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 it's a normal life right and um and i really enjoyed it i would get people going like oh god you must really miss being in a band and i'd be like look it was great really glad i did it but no like, I don't fucking miss it, actually. <laughs> like, this is better. I just, I come into work, I do my job, I can go home, I can, I finish at six and I don't have to take it home with me, yeah. lie awake all night wondering right. whether, you know, someone I sit next to in the office hates me or whether what our fucking midweek is or whether we're going to be able to put another record, you know, all of that <laughs> kind of pressure. So it was quite liberating to just have just a nine to five job and I really enjoyed it you know it was freedom and like I said but I was really glad I had done the band because I think it felt a bit best of both worlds to me you know and I, I think I felt quite lucky as well because it's not like I left the band I do know lots of people who couldn't really find a career after that you know they've been in bands yeah. and that's all they did and right. I think now it's easier. I think there are a lot of, you know, music courses that people will lecture on. There's lots of places where kind of ex-musicians can go and creatives, you know. But at the time, it was like, well, what are you going to do? Drive a fucking minicab or something? I mean, you didn't feel qualified to do anything. Yeah. It, yeah. So when you go back to the little pub in your hometown, wherever it might be, the place stops for a moment and everybody looks and goes like, oh, look, he's, he's, he's come back home. And... Uh, do you think we can get an autograph? We could flog it. I was kind of lucky because I'd done it for a while and accumulated, you know, some funds. So I wasn't, I wasn't like, at one point I was like, well, maybe I should go and do something with computers, you know, because I felt I was good at that. But then, you know, that, that didn't happen and then my son was born and I thought okay I can do stuff I'll do stuff musically if I can which I, I did for a bit uh, but I'm not going on tour I'm not going to leave him while he's growing up you know I'm going to I'm going to be present as a father because I'd seen other people who, who weren't you know able to do that and um, I was able you know I was able to be like that until he was about 15, 16 and then I said okay now I can go and do you know, other things. But really, I haven't had any other kind of career until I started writing and I realized, wow, I love this as much as I like, love making music. I was The other thing I was going to ask you is it's like, for me, when I started um, 
you know, putting the first book out and I talked to my agent, well, how, how many, you know, events do people do, you know, as authors? And he said, oh, about eight or 10. And, and we've done about 300. And it was great because it was just like being in a band. But, you know, it's been a, a much more sort of civilised version. I think that kind of thing of getting a job, like after, I, I sort of notice that because I never really bought into it that much right the kind of celebrity thing and it was kind of pre that I mean you know just on the fucking cover of the NME like whatever but you know what I mean so it it never really I just don't think it really bothered me I don't think it bothers you know I know people who used to be in bands that they've I don't know they've become gardeners or they've become you know like people have all sorts of second careers and I think it's the people who haven't, I often wonder whether they're a little bit crippled by that idea of, oh, it's a bit of a step down, or you're one of the normal people now. Whereas I think a shitload of people I know never considered themselves anything but, you right, know what I mean, sure. and thought it was all bollocks anyway. So that helps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me as well, the way, the way out was I, I ran away, right? I ran away because I had, you know, the end of the band and you know that was very um destructive and very hard for me in lots of ways and then you know i did the big court case because of course you know there's always going to be somebody talking in your ear telling you you can go and get this you should do this and so i did that and that was a big mistake and then i thought well what the fuck am i going to do now so i got on a plane and ca- <laughs> i got on a plane and came here and you know what it it saved me it saved me to be here. So, you know. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I have sympathy with that because I do think that probably America, especially at that time, was infinitely more sympathetic to the idea of any kind of addiction sure. and actually having to tackle it than, you know. I mean, I think back then even the thought of, I don't know, even going to an AA meeting would have just had snorts of derision from, you know, all quarters back in Blighty, you know. And I can see how, I mean, it's quite, it's not uncommon, is it, with kind of addiction to need to kind of completely change the environment, you know, to break all those habits, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, our, our own, you know, Mick Conroy, who was in Modern English and who, you know, was is... Play, the bass player in Poroshka, you know, he had like alcohol addiction. And so, you know, and he up to moved. I mean, he didn't go quite as far as LA at the time, but he went to Suffolk and was living on a houseboat and did just say, like, I just had to get the fuck away from right. all of that and just have a completely different lifestyle. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official Twitter at Cure Creatures 
To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.